Well, we're glad you're here this morning. And those of you joining on Zoom, probably quite a few, we're, we're grateful. And you can join with us. Uh, continue to pray, again, for those not only that went to camp, uh, but those that are at camp. We have a number of our college students who are working at camps this summer. Uh, be in prayer for them as they are serving multiple weeks of kids that are coming in and serving in those capacities as missionaries this summer, uh, which is pretty cool. And so uh, continue to pray for them as they get through the rest of their summer. We are in the midst of our series that we've been working through in First Chronicles and Second Samuel. The two books mirror one another, which is why we're doing them together. Um, passages that, that overlay. Uh, each book has a little bit different nuance. It's kind of like the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. Many of the stories overlap, but there's different nuances to those stories. Very similar when you read through um, First Chronicles uh, and Second Samuel, as well as Second Chronicles, and then you read through the book of Kings. There are some similarities, which we'll get to eventually. Um, and we've been in this series because we remember as the series started, Saul was king. God didn't want a king. If you remember that, God said, I want to be your, your king. The people said, nah, we want a king. He said, okay, if I give you a king, here are the rules that that king and that rule that he's going to have over you if you want it. And they're like, sure, I want it. Yeah, great. I'll make the covenant. We're good. He's like, okay. And then it went badly with Saul. So God said, well, now that you've decided to, to want an earthly king, I'm going to redeem that, which is what God does in our life. We make stupid decisions, all of us, and God comes alongside and redeems those decisions to make something out of nothing, to, to bring glory to himself. And he calls us to still surrender ourselves to the covenants that we've made and that he's made. Our yes be yes, no be no is what Jesus said, and anything beyond that is sin. And we can confess our sins. And when we confess our sins, God says, I will give you my yes, I forgive you, and then I'll help you know when to say yes and no in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's the message of the Bible throughout. It hasn't changed. Is that God says, here's what I want, and we say, well, we want something different. And God says, okay, fine, have it. How's that feel? And then people have to turn back to him. We turn back to him, and God still receives us, he forgives us, he provides a way for us to have a relationship with him. We don't deserve that. He's an almighty, powerful ruler. And so here we are, Saul has died, David has now become king, and at the beginning of the book it says, David is like, what happened, tell me. And we've talked about this week after week. When you read the Old Testament, when you read Chronicles and Samuel, and you read Kings and you read Judges, it is a description of what happened, not a prescription for our lives. I'll say this every week because more misinterpretation and more garbage comes out of the Old Testament and people teaching it as a prescription for your life than any place else in the scriptures. Because in the New Testament, it's kind of spelled out. In epistles, Paul's like, when he writes his, his books to the churches, he's like, you do this, 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 and this. I'm like, oh, okay. But see, what we do is we like to go to stories and we like to pull out the parts of the stories that speak to our emotion, that speak to us, that speak to our feelings. And that can take us off track in a big, big way. Because then we don't see God in the rest of the story, we just see the human, David, in the story. So then you get people who say, well, you just need to be more like David. We can be more like David. I don't want to be like David. And this week's going to show you why. The next several weeks is going to show you why you don't want to be David. I'm just telling you, you don't. You want to be 
Christ-like. You want to follow Christ, not David. Now, was David a man like you and me and made mistakes and we can learn things from his life? Absolutely. Okay? But remember, when you're reading this, it's a description, not a prescription. So when it says that David took more wives, you don't go home today, look at your wife and say, well, it says David took more wives, so I'm going to go look for my next wife. I hope you're okay with that. I'll bring her home in a little bit. No! That was a bad idea, and we're going to find out in the next several weeks why it was a bad idea when all of David's sons go to war against each other from all of his multiple marriages that he wasn't supposed to have. Right? And so it's easy for us to go back and grab something from a narrative, from a story. And this is powerful because in our culture today, this is what we do. Tell me what happened. And then we hear it, we're like, oh, I want that for my life. I'm going to do that. I want that. I'm going to try that. I mean, that's what Facebook is and Twitter. That's what it is. It's storytelling, trying to get people to like and click on your story because they want it to be their story. That's the whole point. And if we're not careful, we'll fall. This week, what I want us to look at, now that David is king, he's had success. God has blessed him, the Bible said. We saw last week that God has just made the ultimate covenant with David to tell him that there would be a king that would sit on David's throne forever, and God said he would do it. And we looked at last week that David began to think, I can build a temple for God, and God never told him, I want you to build a temple. He actually said, I never asked my people to build a temple. Now, did they build a temple? Yeah, they also got a king. God didn't want a king. I don't know if God wanted a temple or not, but when they decided to build a temple, God said, well, you're gonna build it how I want it. I'm gonna give you the king I want. Because that's the way God works. He, he frustrates our plans so that he can show us his glory, that he is everything and that we need to follow him, and he even works through the mess of our lives and the decisions and disasters that we've made because he loves us. And that should encourage us. And so this morning, what I want us to look at is something that's often missed in this story we're gonna see this morning, and that's this. March out to war. March out to war. Every day you are in a war. If you don't feel it, then I wonder what's going on in your heart. If you don't see it around you and see the world at war with itself, then you've got your head buried in the sand. And everybody has solutions how to end these wars. Race wars, nation wars, relationship wars, marriage wars, kids wars. Everybody writes their book. They have their points. They have their solutions. I'm not saying we shouldn't look at those or consider those, but I am telling you that you better be careful when you march out to war that you're doing it the way God wants to do it and you better do it when God wants you to do it. And God has called us as believers. He has told us that if we know Jesus, that we are gonna be going to war every day. Every day there is a war in our hearts for us to choose God and his choices and what he wants or our choices and what we want. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. They went out in the garden. God let them go out. Satan tempted them at the tree. They did what they want and God came and found them and, and rescued them. And that's what he's been doing forever and that's what Christ will do when he comes back. And every day God Christ himself actually is interceding, going to war on behalf of us sinners and advocating for us before the Father because that's who he is as a perfect king, a perfect warrior, and a perfect sacrifice and lamb for us. 
So as we get into this story, you've got to remember, this is not prescription, it's description. So let's dive into the story. It says, after this, after, what is after this? After the covenant. After David said, I want to do this, and God said, no, I'm going to do it, okay? After this, David defeated the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines were defeated a long time ago. If you know Samson and Delilah, back in the book of Judges, which was hundreds of years before this, if you know Samson, Samson was supposed to destroy the Philistines. That's what his power was for, and instead, he played with sin. He, he got Delilah. He used his power to his advantage until the end of his life when he finally used it for God's advantage. But the Philistines, God said, these Philistines are never going to repent. You're going to be at war with them forever. I've given them multiple opportunities and they won't change. You've got a battle against them. And if you don't, they'll corrupt you. You'll take on their gods, their ways, and their things if you don't draw a boundary line and if you don't push them out. It's the same thing with sin in our life. We can't play with sin. We can't make treaties or peace with sin in our life. It goes on, it says, he subdued them and took Gath and its villages from the Philistine control. He also defeated the Moabites. They became David's subjects and brought tribute to David. David also defeated King Hadazazar of Zobath at Hamath, where he went to establish his control of the Euphrates River. David captured 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers from him, hamstrung all the horses, and kept 100 chariots. This is important to remember. David's doing this, but it doesn't mean God wanted to do it. God didn't want them to have chariots, if you read back in the Old, Old Testament. Like back a little bit further when they came out of Egypt, they didn't take weapons of war with them. They took the gold and the silver and the plunder. And so I don't know if David was supposed, but, but even in the Bible it says God doesn't delight in horses and chariots that some put their strength in horses and chariots. And David hamstrings the horses, which is like, okay, I'm not going to put my trust in those horses, but I'm going to keep a few for myself. And see, that's what we often do. And God, in his grace and mercy, still uses us. Again, I don't know if David should have done this or not. All we have is the story. It says he was powerful, he won, it's a description, and this is what he did. It goes on to say, when the Arameans of Damascus came to assist King Hadazazar of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 Aramean men. Then he placed garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Arameans became David's subjects and brought tribute. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. Just because God makes someone victorious does not mean that you can do whatever you want. See, that's how we interpret it in our modern culture. Well, God must be with him because it's going well. God was with Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar when he took all of the southern kingdom into slavery. God was with Assyria when they slaughtered the northern kingdom in discipline and punishment of his people who wouldn't listen to him. I'm sure none of the people thought God was with Nebuchadnezzar. And when Jeremiah prophesied and told the people God's with Nebuchadnezzar, they drug Jeremiah off in chains to Egypt and he died there. Because they wouldn't believe that God could be with a guy like that. Can I just tell you, by the time we get done with David's story over the next several weeks, you should be asking yourself, how could God ever use a guy like that? And asking yourself, how could God ever use a person like you? He goes on and says this. David took the gold shields carried by Hezadazar's officers and brought them to Jerusalem. 
from Tibhath and Kun, Hesedazar's um, cities, David also took huge quantities of bronze from which Solomon made the bronze reservoir, the pillars, and the bronze articles. In other words, later that bronze was used in the building of the temple. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites were subject to David. The Lord made David victorious wherever he went. He repeats himself. So David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Elihud, was court historian. Zadok, son of Ahitab, and Amalek, son of Abathar, were priests. Shavasha was court secretary. Benaiah, son of Jehodiah, was the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were the chief officials at the king's side. If you read through this, it looks like things are going awesome. They're winning every battle. They've subdued all their enemies. There's peace. There's David's sons have been made officials. My boys, look at my boys. They're rising up. They're, they're becoming famous and well-known and given power. Be careful. Be careful. In the midst of this, David responds appropriately. Look at day, uh, 2 Samuel 9. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago on Father's Day and the Father's kindness. In 9.9 9, it said, David asks, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? After David wins, he's trying to make peace and show kindness. He's, he, he's not trying to kill everybody and go to war, right? He's not marching out to war just because I want to. He's looking and saying, I, I want to show people the goodness, the peace, the majesty, the beauty of God. In 1 Chronicles 19, also in 2 Samuel 10, it says, Sometime later, King Nahash of the Ammonites died and his son became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show him kindness. Or I'll show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, because his father showed me kindness. David's not saying, well, God's called me to go to war, so I'm going to go after everything. I'm going to kill everything. I'll show them. No. David's looking to honor the Lord with his life. But then a turning point comes in 1 Chronicles 20. And this is what people skip over. It's what we can skip over when we skip over the little things. It's why when people don't connect to the body of Christ, when they don't go to church, when they're not consistently walking with God in simple ways, I get really concerned for them. And it's because of this very reason. Here's David. He subdued all of his enemies. He's showing peace. He's got treaties. Another king just built him a palace from another nation. I mean, it is like this couldn't get any better. In the spring, when kings march out to war, Joab led the army and destroyed the Ammonites' land. He came to Rabbah and besieged it. But David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in his palace where it was comfortable. He didn't go out to fight. Well, I got people to fight for me. Jesus is fighting for me in heaven, so I got grace. I can just do my life, have my best life now. I don't have to put on military gear and go fight because God's just fighting for me, and I just do what I want, and he's going to bless it. We talked about this last week. Satan can bless you with a lot of things. And he will, to keep you deceived and keep you from following Christ and keep you from helping others know him. He'll do everything he can. 
Samuel 11 actually repeats this. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab. Yeah, you go. With the officers in all Israel, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And while David is remaining in Jerusalem, when he should be out fighting wars, when he should be out defending the people and defending the territory, David is taking it easy. Now, should we rest? Yes, God calls us to rest. If you read the scriptures multiple times, God calls us to rest. But our problem in our culture is that we don't know how to rest and how to work. We do both with extremes. We don't know how to walk with God and rest and walk with God and work. It's so messed up. It's why God gave people, hey, work six days, sun up to sundown, and take a full day off, everybody in the nation. When God established his nation, he just gave boundaries and said, this is how it's going to be. We don't live in that nation anymore, by the way. We live in a foreign nation, and most of God's people, actually all of God's people, live in a foreign nation because God is building his nation in heaven, which you looked at last week, that he's going to bring down to earth. So it's a mess. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask these questions. Should I go out to war? Is it time to rest? What what does God have for me? And then ask the body of Christ to help us in that. Where was Joab to look at David and say, what do you mean you're staying home? Dude, we're at war. Our people are being attacked. It's spring. The weather's broke. And now those armies are coming after us to try to take what they can get before we get out there. That's the way it works. To take the field so you can plant Crops for your people, from the other people. Joab doesn't challenge it. Well, the king said so, and I'm going to get the glory for it, so I'll go out. Joab later does challenge it. And here's what happens while David is waiting when he should be marching. Here's what happens when David was supposed to be out fighting, and instead, he just took it easy. One evening, isn't that how sin always starts? (laughs) One evening, one morning, it's like a fairy tale. Once upon a time, (laughs) and you're like, okay, where's this going? David got up from his bed, restless, probably because he should have been out fighting. He's a warrior. Warriors don't like to sit still. They have a hard time sitting still. Busy people have a hard time sitting still. That's David. He wakes up. He walks around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. I love how the scripture just describes things. He could have just said a woman bathing. No, no, no. He's like, no, no, no. He saw a woman, and then he looked long enough to make sure it was a beautiful woman. For David to go to the top of the palace in the evening, he knew what women in all their houses around would be doing on their roofs because the women would go up to bathe. So they couldn't be seen. But see, David had an evil king, possibly evil, but a king built him a great palace. And before, we talked about David didn't ask the question, should I even have a palace? He just accepted he should have a palace. Then he got upset and said, well, I have a palace, and God looks really shabby in a tent, so I need to make God a temple instead of asking, should I even be living here? And here he is, he goes up, he should be, 
off fighting and he's not. Listen, it wasn't sinful to have a palace. It wasn't sinful to, to save some bronze for the possible future building of the temple. But what happens is we subtly start trusting in other things. We subtly take our guard down and we're no longer ready to march out to war. And that's exactly what happens here. It says, so David sent someone to inquire about her. And the person reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. The mightiest soldiers David had, one of the closest soldier crew to David. These were the elite of the elite of the elite soldiers. These were the, like, Secret service special ops guys of David's army. And this is Uriah's wife. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Afterwards, she returned home. When you're reading through a narrative, just pause a minute and put yourself in the circumstances of the people in the narrative. Uriah's off fighting where he should be for the king who's at home when he should be fighting. Bathsheba's minding her own business. Actually, she's obeying God, going through the cleansing ritual after she's had her period, her menstruation. That's what they're talking about there. She was ending her menstrual cycle, and she was doing what the Bible commanded women to do in the midst of that which we'll see in just a minute in Leviticus. She's obeying God, minding her own business while her husband's off at war and the king demands she come to her. She really doesn't have a choice. King says, come, you come. You, you go. You march out. And it says that David slept with her. Was this rape? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it was definitely pressure. And if your husband's been off at war fighting, and you're lonely, you wonder if he'll return. And if he's one of those committed military guys that's always off at war fighting God's battles, and you're at home wondering, it's real easy in your own heart to say, well, the king wants me. I'm special. My husband doesn't want me like the king wants me. And yeah, he's being responsible to me. He's being responsible to our family. He's being responsible to the people of God, but I'm looking for something to give me now. Just pause for a minute and think of all the mess that this is and what we don't know. And it's like, what a mess David just did. And it all started with a small thing. Look in Leviticus 15. This is what Bathsheba was doing. In Leviticus 15, it describes the purification rites for men and for women. Describes it for men when they have a semen come out of them, whether that's accidentally or whether it's on purpose because they're having sex. You have to cleanse yourself as the male and female. Take a shower. That's what the Bible says. Isn't it amazing that the Bible like talks about this stuff and then we're like, oh, did he just say that in the service? It's in the Bible. I'm reading it to you. Leviticus 15 talks about women having discharges out of themselves. Duh. And in this day, they didn't have maxi pads and tampons. It was bad. It was ugly. It was messy. It could spread disease. It was problematic. 
So God tells his people to protect, you ready for this? To protect themselves from disease, and you ready? To protect women from prideful, arrogant men who want to use them for sex. This week I saw a video, (laughs) just coincidentally. That's how God works. I saw a video this week of this device that they've made that men can put on themselves to feel the cramps that women feel when they're having normal cramps each month. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. There's a little language, so be careful, because these guys freaked out. And these women, they literally stuck the probes on the women, turned it on, full blast, and they're like, yeah, it's about what it feels like. And the guys are like, they put it on the guys, they turn up half, and they're doubled up on the couch screaming. One guy looks and goes, how do you live? How do you walk around and talk like this? You see, God puts these rules here not because he's saying you women are dirty and you men are dirty. He puts them there to say, you men keep your hands off these women. They're hurting. Leave them alone. Don't use them. And David ignores that. And he uses Bathsheba. So it's not just a sin of there's a woman and I have her. Oh no, he's going to ignore God's law. Ignore what God says is right. It says everyone who touches them, a woman with discharge, will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water. He will remain unclean until evening. When she is cured of her discharge, she is to count seven days. And after that, she will be clean. On the eighth day, she must take two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That was to declare to everyone, including her husband, I'm available now. You know, some people have that little sign on the door, you know, tonight, not tonight. It's like a joke, a little pill. Have you ever seen those things? Or they have a bear you can turn upside down, a way to communicate. We don't have that in our home. I'm just saying some people do, Right? And, and, and it's, it, it, that's what this was. This was looking at the man and saying, okay, the body of Christ is telling you, man, go for it. Praise the Lord. They had to get permission to re-engage. It goes on, it says, the priest will sacrifice, is to sacrifice one as a sin offering The other is a burn offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her before the Lord because of her unclean discharge. She hadn't gone and sacrificed yet. She was just washing up so that she could go sacrifice. What a mess. It all seems so small and insignificant. It's not a big deal. It's not a big sin. It's... It's just one right after the other. This is what Romans says. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. You know, I can't show gratitude for the fact that out of 30 days, God tells me basically I'm not supposed to have sex with my wife for maybe, I don't know, 14 or 18 in the Old Testament of those 30 days. When you do the math, depending on how long women have cramps, because many of you are different. Let's just be honest. Then you've got to wait seven days. Excuse me? It's also for her control, to control her body in a way that glorifies the Lord. Goes on, it says, instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise, right? That's what we do. Well, I'm wise to stay home and protect myself as the king. I don't want anybody to kill me. 
Their thinking became nonsense. They were, their senseless minds were darkened. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. That's what David did. Instead of saying, God, what do you want? And I want what you want. He said, I want her. That's my idol. It's mine. And that's what we do. We decide that something's better than God. He goes on, he says, therefore God delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts, to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God. That's not your wife, David. You should be off at war, David. She's not clean, David. Those are all things that God has told you you should be doing, David. I exchange all of that, and eventually when you start putting aside the things of God, I absolutely promise you, you will follow whatever craving comes your way. And Satan is more than happy to bless you with it. He'll put it on a platter for you to have it. And you'll even say, God gave it to you. This week I was teaching at one of our addiction ministries that we partner with. And one of the guys, after I got done teaching, he said, I, I can, he said he remembered a story of when he went to the liquor store, wasn't a believer. He only had two dollars. This is when he was an alcoholic. He went to the liquor store with two bucks. And he thought, man, it's gonna be hard to buy anything with two dollars. And he said when he pulled up, there was a guy he saw in the, walking in and that guy owed him 10 bucks. And he said in that moment, I thanked God. He said literally, I said, oh, thank you, God. I can get a fifth of whiskey now. And I went in and I got a fifth of whiskey because that guy owed me 10 bucks. And he looked and he said, how twisted is that? that I'm thanking God for giving me whiskey for my own addiction, to kill myself and get in a car and drive drunk. That's how wicked our hearts can become, we looked at last week. That's what Romans says, that if you're, listen, if you feel yourself slipping, come back. That's what David, we'll see in a moment, does. He comes back, full steam back to God, and God will receive you. Will there be consequences to the decisions that you've made? Absolutely there are than going down this direction because it goes on and it says because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God or I'm sorry they go on and it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of their creator who is praised forever so instead of David allowing Bathsheba to worship her God through her cleanliness and through her sacrifice of her doves and worship by honoring her husband David decided he would make an exchange with her it goes on and it says and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, we'll see that in a minute, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. That's the New Testament writing. 2 Samuel 11, the woman conceived. Uh-oh. You realize that at that moment when Bathsheba was at that point, that that's like one of the times that the books tell you is a good time to not conceive? Like right after your period? That's a, that's a better time because... The woman is cleaned out, and so you shouldn't get pregnant during that time as much. Did David take advantage of that? I don't know. All I know is that this was a shock to both of them. 
the woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab and the troops, or asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door to the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. See, David, as we read on, when it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. Remember David said, God's dwelling in a tent, I need to build him a temple. My master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. What a man of honor. What a man of character. His wife was clean from her purity by this point. She she was past the days. He had every right to go sleep with his wife, but he knew that if he went back and talked to the soldiers, they'd be like, why did you get to do that and not us? David assumes, because of David's own heart, that of course Uriah would come home and sleep with his wives, because i got a bunch of wives and I'm looking to sleep with one all the time, in David's mind. So of course if I bring Uriah back and give him the opportunity, of course he'll take it, of course he'll want what's easy and comfortable and peaceful. He won't want what's warlike to sleep outside. And No, 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 no. He's going to want the creature comforts. Uriah's like, no way I'm doing this. There's even a case to be made for this that Uriah didn't want to have sex until the ark was back as an act of worship. That Uriah even saw sex as an act of worship. That when the ark is out, I'm not going to bring pleasure, I'm going to war. But when the ark comes home, it's time for a party. (laughs) That is a righteous dude. That, That is a man of honor. Goes on and says this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. David knows that he can't get Uriah to compromise. He can't get him to make a little compromise. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. His wife's there. I mean, she had to be like, why aren't you coming home? You're here. Because that's not what we do. We go to war. Well, but the king stayed home. Why can't you come in and sleep with me? Goes on and says this. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. David's not done yet. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. (laughs) David thought, if I get him stone drunk, he'll go home, and then Bathsheba can sleep with him, and we can cover up our sin. And Uriah still doesn't go home. He went to his master's servants, Joab's servants. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Now look at this. Uriah is carrying this letter with him back to David. That means Uriah, being an honest man, because David knows Uriah is an honest man, he knows Uriah will not open the letter. He's not going to peek and be like, I wonder what David's saying to the troops. Nope. 
Because Uriah is not what Roman said. He's not a gossip. He's not a slanderer. He's not looking for the, the info. He's just like, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to obey my king. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting and withdraw from him so that it is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you're finished telling the kings or the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Don't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thebes, who struck Abimelech, son of Jeburusheth, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger reported to David, the men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the gate. However, the archers shot down your soldiers from the top of the wall, and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Joab is letting David know, I don't know why you did this, but it wasn't a good decision. That's why he tells him, remember before when we did this and a millstone fell on somebody? You did this. He's basically telling him, you did this for a reason and I don't know why, but I'm not happy with it. Now Joab has something over David. Joab has a little piece of info on David in this circumstance that he can use to his advantage if he chooses to. Can I just tell you that's what the enemy does to us? The enemy takes our sin and he uses it to his advantage. He pulls on that little bit and gets us to go like Romans talks about. Goes on to say this. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't kill this, or don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage it. Joab is upset. He's ticked that he had to do this to Uriah his best man. He doesn't understand. And David then commands him, I know you don't understand, but just go ahead and finish the battle. I know you want vengeance, Joab, and I give you permission now to just have vengeance all over those people. And David's in the middle of all this. Goes on, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil, duh. <laughs> thanks for clarifying that Lord like when God wants us to know prescription versus description he prescribes it <laughs> this was evil goes on it says so the Lord sent Nathan to David see David's still trying to play the game well if I just bring Bathsheba into my house maybe people will think she delivered early maybe they'll think it was Uriah's wife because they think Uriah slept with her and I'm, now I'm a noble person because I'm taking on this warrior's wife and bringing her into my house to care for her how would you like to be called the rest of your life to follow a king like this because that's what the people of Israel had to do and what they were called to do? And how would you like to know that the king that did this is going to be the king that the line that God uses comes through to bring salvation to the world? And before you're too hard on David, just know our hearts are just as wicked. 
We just may not have taken advantage of it because we aren't kings and we haven't had the power to take advantage of it. He goes on and says, so the Lord said to Nathan when he arrived, he said to him, there are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. So now Nathan's telling David a story. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe that he had bought. He raised it and grew it up, living with him and his children. He shared its meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Okay, that's weird to be like that with a sheep. Let's just say that, okay? It goes on, it says, Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. How many wives did David have at this point? Many. Remember, we just read a couple of weeks ago that he took more wives. David had wives and concubines to sleep with galore. Surely someone wasn't unclean that night. That he could have asked one of them, oh, no, 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 I'm going to go find a different one because none of those satisfy me. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Why would David be so upset about how lambs are treated? Anybody? Anybody? He was a shepherd who risked his life against lions and bears and tigers, oh my, for the sake of his father's flock. He laid with lambs and protected them with his life. That was his battle when his brothers were off fighting a war. God had called him to fight the war of the sheep. And so David sees this and he is, he is lit up. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. It's exactly what God says to us. The question is, will we accept it? Or will we say, how dare you? I'm the king. I'm an important person. I'm not as bad as this person. Well, Bathsheba participated. She could have kicked me and ran. Joab listened to me. He could have protected Uriah. This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. Why have, then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? Doing multiple things. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. And all of this happens to David. Now, if God were to tell you your consequences, which he often doesn't tell us, but if God were to tell you the consequences that were coming for you, what would be your reaction in this circumstance? I think my reaction would be, you are not. I'll show you. You just try it. I'll go tell them. Hey, wives, somebody's coming for you. Don't go with them. Right? I got to protect myself. I got to do all this. David responded to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. 
Then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. He doesn't say he's taken away your consequences. He said, I've taken away your sin. I no longer hold that on you, but there's still earthly consequences we have to live with. Even if you're not a big sinner, there are still earthly consequences that you have to live with. There have been four people shot right here in Crestmont Park over the last week. I don't know if you know that. They're not sure where it's coming from. It's coming from a 223 rifle. They know that. They found a bullet fragment. People may be minding their own business and get shot in the leg. What sin did they commit to be shot in the leg? Maybe they did. Maybe they were, you know, drug dealers and the other drug dealers shot them. We don't know. Maybe that's just, we live in a sinful world and sometimes garbage happens to us. Because of the sin that's been passed down and the only hope we have is that God would not hold our sins against us and would someday come and deliver us from the consequences that we see all around us. That's what the Bible presents. And so many false teachers, so many churches are running around, writing books, doing things, and it's all about consequence management. That's all it is. It's consequence management. All of it. Should we not manage consequences? No, no, not at all. But we should say why they're there. But we don't. We just skip over that. I just got to fix the problem, fix the consequences, fix the issues. That's what David was trying to do. And it just got worse and worse until he finally said, I'm done. And then God said, I forgive you. But there's still a mess coming. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David. Notice that God doesn't even call Bathsheba David's wife. God refers to Bathsheba as, that's Uriah's wife, not yours. You took her. Goes on and says, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. He's crying out to God, why would you take this innocent life? The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling. He would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died. But David's servants were afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. So how can we tell him the baby's dead? He may do something desperate. They thought he was going to commit suicide. He was so low at this point in his life because of all he was done and seeing the consequences, they thought David's going to kill himself. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. Watch this. Then David got up from the ground. He cleansed himself. That's a ritual cleansing, a washing of the sin, a washing of, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he went to the Lord's house and worshiped. We're so busy complaining. We're so busy trying to figure things out. Sometimes the right response is just to worship. You don't understand why. You don't see the pieces You just have to tell God what we said, not to us, but to your name be the glory. It's all about you. Then he went home and requested something to eat. They served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, what did you just do? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. 
See, we don't know what's gonna happen, but we fast, we pray, we call out to God and we ask, but when God gives an answer, the proper response is worship. That's why David was a man after God's own heart, even though he was so sinful at times. Goes on and it says, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Look, this was David's hope. I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. Where's the baby according to that? Heaven. When I die, because I know God has forgiven me and forgiven my sin, I know that I will see my child again. That when I die, I'll be with him. But God's not sending him back to me. See, David could worship because he knew where his child was. He knew that God was good and would save. He could trust God with the life of his own child. See, that's worship. And after all that God said to him, it's crazy. Look at what David writes. We're just going to read this. In Psalm 51, this is how David worshiped. We have exactly what David wrote for worship. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. For him to write that, knowing that his baby was born and died, that means David accepted the fact that we are sinful from birth and somehow God still saves babies. He goes on and says, yet you despise, or you desired faithfulness even from the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In other words, I can't wash myself. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, then once that happens, I'll march back out. I will march out and teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. I'll go face nations and say, the God of Yahweh sent me. Will you repent or not? If you don't, I gotta go to war with you. That's exactly what David does. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Oh God, you who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise that. We're always trying to make up for things and play the game. And God's like, I just want your heart so that I can send you out and so that you can tell others what a relationship with me really looks like. The theology in Psalm 51 is amazing. It's, it doesn't even look like Old Testament theology. <laughs> the way we teach it. It's Old Testament theology, but not the way we view it. Or the way it's been taught. David is laying out the character of God. And then he says, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. By the way, we looked last week, Jesus is building Jerusalem as we speak, to bring it from heaven to earth. That's what he's doing. 
Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings, offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, you got to do it all because we're a mess. After the baby died, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Maybe he shared this psalm that he wrote with her. I don't know. I wrote a song, honey. This is who our God is. I'm sorry I did this to you. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. How could God love Solomon? He's the the son of just a disaster. Of maybe a raped woman and stolen from her husband and husband murdered. How? Because God looks down on the broken. He looks down on the brokenhearted and the contrite, and he has mercy. And God could have chosen any one of David's other sons to be the line that he would bring the kingdom through. But you know who God chose? Solomon. You want to know why? Because David doesn't get any of the credit. All David gets is his sin. When Solomon's name is mentioned in the lineage in Mark and Matthew, or when it's in Luke and Matthew, when, when the lineage of Christ is laid out and you realize that it was through Solomon's line that David, all of a sudden you hear the word Solomon and you think Solomon, Bathsheba, David, dead. Oh, goodness gracious. See, God takes the broken things and he, he changes us and he gives us the strength to go out and to fight. And he sent a message through Nathan the prophet who named him Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Can you imagine the fury of David's other sons and other wives? So let me get this straight. I didn't sin. David didn't kill my husband. Like, like I've been good. My boys have been good. They've served their father. And this kid's going to get, What? You see that in the church today, right? We get jealous, we compare. God can use who he wants to use. He goes on in 2 Samuel, Joab fought against Rabbah, son of the Ammonites, and captured the royal fortress. Then Joab sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah, and have also captured the water supply. Now therefore assemble the rest of the troops, lay siege to the city, and capture it. Otherwise, I will be the one to capture the city, and will be named after me. So David assembled all the troops, and he went to Rabbah. He fought against it and captured it. David finally goes out to battle. Okay, I got to go fight. Even in the midst of his sin, even in the midst of the mess, even thinking, can God still use me when I've done all this evil? Joab says, will you still go out and fight? And he's like, yeah, because I should have done that before. And so if I go out and fight and I die, I die. Doesn't matter. I'm going out to fight. This is what the New Testament says about marching out to war. Three passages and we're done. He says, finally be strengthened. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus after he tells them how to submit to one another in relationships. (laughs) He lays out submission to authority, which is what we're looking at with David and Bathsheba and Uriah and this whole mess. And then he says, in the midst of all that mess, finally, remember, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics 
of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. James says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight in war you do not have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on all your evil desires, adulterous. James calls us, like David, adulterers, just like David was. Because anytime we put an idol in front of God, it's adultery. We're using that thing for our pleasure. This is what Jesus gave to his disciples. As he, as the king, left this earth and went to heaven, these were his marching orders. Then Jesus came near and said to them, Jesus wasn't far off, he came near, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always till the end of the age. The reason David could go back out in March is because he believed that even in the midst of his sin, God would fulfill his covenant and God was with him. And whatever happened to him, happened to him. But he wasn't going to sit at home anymore. He wasn't going to sit on the sidelines anymore. He was going to start engaging. The consequences that come to David's life after this are extreme. You are going to see such a mess. The majority of David's life is spent in a mess in his family. It's a disaster. Even all the way till the end. It's a mess. And yet David, all the way through it, embraced the consequences, knowing God had forgiven him and knowing that in each step, he was going to to declare the glory of God at each turn. That when his sin was written down for all of us to read, for all of history, David wasn't concerned with that because he knew his God had forgiven him. He knew his God had called him to fight. He knew he could trust God with his life and with where it would end up. See, David wasn't concerned about managing consequences. David was concerned about worship, surrendering his life to God. We'll see that David does some more stupid things, just like we do. But the beauty of this is that God is still calling you and telling you that he wants to use you. You may have stayed home. You may have sit on the sidelines. You may think that you're nothing. But I'm telling you right now, there is a God who is calling out to you to say, I still have plans for your life. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, even though harm will come. My ultimate plan is is for your prosperity and the prosperity of my glory, God says. Later, he says he works all things for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Are you called according to his purpose or you keep trying to use God for your purposes, which James says don't do it? Have you been called to God's purpose? Have you said God's purpose is to show us we're like David, we're just as dumb, we're just as sinful and we are desperate for a savior and we have to worship him and call other people to worship him and we sit alongside our wife that we sinned with and we repent and we say, God, we're sorry and we, and we believe that God can redeem Guys, we're in a war. 
And when we don't go out to fight, it's just gonna keep getting worse. But when we go out to fight, it may get worse, but in the midst of it, we're gonna know we're walking with God and he is with us because Jesus said, lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I've given you a mission to go out and to tell people about me, to make disciplined people, disciples, to teach them, to baptize them. Baptize means bring into the church. That's the goal. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And instead, we look at the consequences, and when we see the consequences, unlike David, we don't go worship. We fast and pray more, and we think, I'm I'm worthless, I can't. No. God wants to use you. The question is, have you surrendered to him? Is he your master? Is he your king? Are you still trying to give him orders? And if you've sinned, I am telling you right now, there is a God that wants to extend forgiveness. And he wants you to sing to him and worship him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words this morning. I thank you for the mercy and grace, the justice that you have. Lord, we may not like the picture that this gives us of who you are, but it really doesn't matter. It's who you are. Lord, there are a lot of people trying to change who you are. They're trying to make you a little less just or a little less loving Father, you are just and you are loving. You sent your son to take our justice and to show us your love. Father, I pray that if someone here this morning has not, like David, come to you in the midst of the mess and just surrendered and said, you know what, I surrender, I cry out to you, I pray they would. And Lord, those that are fighting this morning, I pray they wouldn't give up. If you're still calling them to fast and to pray and to fight, I pray that they wouldn't give up and just go sit on top of the, top of the palace and look for the next pleasure they want. Father, I pray that you'd help us to march out into battle, to be your servants, to, to make you known to the world around us so that you get the credit for what you have done. And so, Lord, we pray, help us to worship you. Help us surrender to you. Help us to make that decision. And then help us to receive the accountability we need to stay in that decision. Just like you sent Joab and you sent Nathan and you sent Uriah. You just sent these people into David's life that kept heaping on the conviction until the point when he finally broke. Lord, would we just break Because you do not despise a broken and contrite heart. You're looking for it. And when that happens, you come in with your full truth, with your full embrace, and you help us walk through the next thing that's coming, the consequences, the the, the glory, the, the blessings we don't deserve, and the grace. You walk us through all of it because you are with us to the end of the age, if we know you. Pray all this in your name.